This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. Welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and um, I'm still thinking about an issue that I've delved into on past shows, and I'm going to do it again, topic being wealth in America, how it's produced, who's got it, who doesn't, um, and how we regard it in this country these days during this great recession we're in. Well, my guests on the show today have spent a lot of their lives pondering the very same subjects. Both are wealthy heirs born into very rich families. Both came to question their good fortunes, wonder about their uncommon wealth in relation to the commonwealth, and uh, both came around to advocating for what they call a fairer economic system. I'll tell you about the second guest when the moment arrives, but um, first things first, part one of the show, a conversation with Jamie Johnson, as in Johnson & Johnson. You know, the folks who gave us Johnson's baby powder, Band-Aids, Tylenol, and half the other items on the drugstore shelves. Well, Jamie's from that family, one of the richest in the U.S. And he has long been bemused by the privileges of the highborn like himself, by uh, cultural attitudes toward wealth, and by the disparities of rich and poor in America. He has become a documentary filmmaker, and his films examine these subjects. The first was uh, Born Rich, about the lives of wealthy heirs, and the second was The 1%, about the wealth gap in America. I spoke to Jamie by phone and got down to dollars and cents immediately. What is your net worth? Well, I'm a double-digit millionaire, um, and that's, you know, really as specific as I get with it. But uh, but that's what it is. Um, in asking that, um, i got to admit that I felt very impolite, and I noticed you hesitated with the answer. Is there is there a lot of inhibition around that? I think there is some inhibition around it. Um, you know, I've gone out of my way to try and suggest that I think people should talk more freely about wealth, and I really think they should. Um, as it stands, though, it's still uh, a topic that's a bit taboo and, and, you know, makes people generally uncomfortable. There's some social awkwardness that goes along with it. Um, I'm not entirely immune to it myself, although I've uh, noted it in the films I've made. Mm. Why do you think the taboo? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with issues of inequality that aren't entirely sorted out in our society. I think that, you know, historically we've had um, this concept of the American dream and this idea of a meritocracy, and that's not always uh, entirely accurate. Um, So I think that affects social attitudes towards discussing wealth and money. Do you think also that there's something a little lurid, you know, uh, or prurient in the way people ask that question sometimes? I mean, as I was thinking about asking you, what is your net worth? And that's something I don't ask people normally. Um, I was thinking about the kind of motives that go along with a question like that, like envy, jealousy, um, a certain kind of uh, voyeurism. Uh, I don't know. Do you feel like that coming from people sometimes when they talk to you about your wealth or your family's wealth? I don't know. You know, it's hard to say um, what piques people's interest about wealth. It certainly fascinates me. I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about it and how how it affects our larger culture. Um, Why exactly? I mean, I have some, some basic ideas about that, but 
I, I couldn't nail down a real specific answer for that. Mm -hmm. Well, you've made two documentaries about the lives of the wealthy, but uh, it strikes me that there are a lot more documentaries about the poor than there are about the rich. And I mean real documentaries. I don't mean the kind of um, tabloid fare that we normally get about the rich. I mean real questioning documentaries. I agree. Why do you think that is? Well, access is an issue. Yeah. You had a lot of difficulty getting access, despite your, your family ties and uh, the fact that you're an insider in the world of the rich. Um, you had a hard time getting people to participate in these documentaries. I did. You know, I reached out to a lot of people who said no, um, and it took uh, more than two years to make both of the films that I made, largely because people were resistant to talking about wealth on camera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In uh, the first of your films, Born Rich, which is about um, younger generation of heirs and heiresses, uh, including yourself and a number of friends and acquaintances of yours, you did get a number of people to participate, some of them pretty well-known um, or, or from very well-known families. Um, what did it take to persuade them? Well, many of them weren't resistant. Um, you know, there were a few that I asked uh, very directly, and they responded enthusiastically, and they still really appreciate having the opportunity to discuss the subject in a documentary. And you know, they stand behind their their comments, the comments that they made. On the other hand, at least one of them sued you afterwards. Right, and then there were others who started to regret what they had said on camera, and and I think some of that had to do with pressure from family and friends outside influence that suggested that these individuals shouldn't have discussed this taboo topic in a film. Your, your own family put some pressure on you, too? Well, largely my father. You know, he was raised to believe that it's impolite to talk about money. That was a big part of his upbringing. So he was resistant to the filmmaking process. He seems uneasy, but he seems um, like a good sport in some ways, willing to even say that, you know, on camera. Yeah, it's interesting. You always went far enough to say it on camera. I mean, there were he could have avoided that. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it seems that he almost wanted to participate in, in some way, but there were limitations. It, it, it's so strange, isn't it, that something that I think most people would admit that they would like to have, that is wealth, is a subject of embarrassment, you know, when, when people finally get it? It doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, so many people in this country pursue large fortunes, and yet it's something that they have a lot of unresolved feelings about. You know, uh, that alone is is one of the reasons why I like exploring these themes in, in the films that I've made and things that I write. And I also was fascinated by the fact that so many people who have all of these opportunities and these great resources don't seem to live really meaningful and interesting lives. Mm. And uh, that also seems like a great irony to me as well. You know, they've had great educations, access to everything they could ever want, and yet they're miserably unhappy. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because um, uh, in your films, you, you come off as a neutral observer. I mean, there's a point of view in your films, but it's very subtle. Uh, you let people speak for themselves. You let them talk about what they do. And I don't hear you opining on them in the films. So in Born Rich, you talk to a number of these young people who've inherited lots of money, and um, their activities run the range from 
doing a lot of shopping um, to um, modeling or uh, in one case, uh, you know, there's a guy who's, who's, a, who's a, both a model and who spends his time educating himself. He's wants to be a cultivated person. You know who I'm talking about. Cody Franchetti. Yeah. Yeah. He's Italian. Um, uh, and, um, and then you've got uh, uh, people who are genuinely striving to, to uh, carve out meaningful lives. But, but you're saying that, that the majority of them you think were not particularly happy or fulfilled. I would say some of them weren't happy and weren't f- fulfilled. And there are also a number of examples out there of really well-known rich people who inherited a lot of money, who lived tragic lives, and who were clearly miserable. Do you, do you see a distinction between folks like yourself who inherited the wealth and those who made it, um, or is it does the same story tend to play out among people who are self-made? I think that it does play out with people that are self-made as well. Personally, I know more about what happens to people who inherited money because that's my personal experience also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You found out, uh, I think you say in... in um I can't remember whether you say it in one of the films or whether you've said it in interviews, but you found out that you were wealthy when you were in the fourth grade? Yes. You were in school, and some classmates found the Forbes 400 list, the 400 richest families in the U.S., and your your family's name was on it. And that's how you found out? Yes. What did you think you were before that? Well, I, I knew that, you know, in, in the lingo of a child, that we had a lot of stuff and that we were well off. But I didn't really have a sense of the scope of my family's wealth. You know, it wasn't really something that we talked about in the household. And that scope is, uh, I think you you quote it at uh, an inheritance on your father's part of a billion dollars? Yeah, roughly that. Okay. Um, Did you have an image of of what rich people were as a kid that um, didn't, like, jibe with your own sense of yourself when you started thinking about it? I would say that the more I started to think about it, the more I started to believe that there were certain things that didn't make any sense about the circumstance of being born rich. Mm -hmm. And the older I became, the more conscious of some of the conflicts that people faced who were born rich, I thought, wow, this is so strange because you wouldn't expect these problems to plague people who have everything going for them. Did you have an idea, though, about sort of a stereotype of rich people yourself? I mean, we tend to get those stereotypes, I think, from stories, from the media. Um, I mean, did you have some kind of childlike idea of what a rich person was? And I'm just curious whether that had influenced your your feelings about, whoa, I'm rich too. Yeah, I probably had a sense of those pop culture depictions of rich people Yeah, and some of the material goods that were associated with being rich. How did that square with, with your experience, your actual life? I would say that there weren't, um, there weren't, you know, those kind of pop culture iconic symbols of wealth weren't as much a part of my family's experience um, as, uh, as TV depictions would lead you to believe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You guys did have a mansion, though, I, I imagine. Certainly, a, you know, a large house. Yeah. Polo ponies? No. Were, were most or all of your friends growing up also wealthy? A lot of them. I mean, I went to private school. So if they weren't super rich, they were certainly privileged. Um, 
do you have friends of, of real do you have close friends of modest means or even you know who who um have had a hard time financially yeah i do yeah and, and that doesn't create any kind of weirdness for you the the idea that oh gee you could bail them out you know are you supposed to bail them out or or uh let them you know sink or swim on their own it doesn't really for me. Uh-huh. I think that that could happen for people, and you know, I've heard people talk about having real issues with that, but it doesn't happen for me. Mm-hmm. Um, your uh, second film, uh, The One Percent, uh, gets its name from a statistic that you quote that, uh, at least at the time of the film, according to some sources, uh, the top one percent of the the wealthiest Americans had forty percent of the total wealth in the country. Yeah. And you say um, that you think that uh, so much in the hands of so few can't be a good thing for America. Yes. Why don't you tell me why, why you think that's true? And uh, I know that you, you um, talked to people who would disagree with you. I did, yeah. I think concentrations of wealth and increasing contra- concentrations of wealth are problematic for societies. I think historically you can, you know, you can look back at the record and and identify examples where when extremes between rich and poor have 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 gotten excessive, it's a bad thing for the overall culture, and it makes society vulnerable to all kinds of internal dysfunction that they might not otherwise face. When I made the film, the gap between the rich and poor was growing, and we also had a president in the White House who was creating a number of tax policies that supported economic growth for the rich disproportionately. And I felt that that was particularly problematic. You're talking about George W. Bush. And, of course, that that trend has been um, going on for a while, uh, even prior to his administration. Sure. With, apparently, the support of many, many voters, maybe the majority of voters. People will argue on that, but... Voters did, after all, elect presidents who who pushed those policies. Um, how do you understand a majority or a near majority of Americans who support policies that don't necessarily enrich them? <laughs> yeah, it's a strange thing. You know, I feel that sometimes people vote for policies that work against their best interest. What is your view toward uh, to rectifying the, what you see as an imbalance? Well, I think a more progressive tax structure is a great idea. At the same time, I think that, you know, Obama's hesitation to increase taxes while the economy is suffering like it is now is probably a wise move. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, among the the young people you interviewed in Born Rich, they talk a lot about their um, – ambitions, um, or in some cases, the the problem of having no ambition, you know, when you have a lot of money, you don't really have to work. You talk about that for yourself as well. But I don't think anybody in the film really talks about philanthropy. Uh, I mean, wanting to take their power and their wealth and, and uh, apply it to, um, you know, helping people. No one really does mention philanthropy. And I think in the case of Born Rich, I interviewed people that were around 18, 19, 20, and whenever I asked them about philanthropy, they would say, well, when I come into more of my family money as time passes, I'll become more philanthropic. In the 1%, 
I didn't mention philanthropy because the country, this country, in this country, there's a lot of philanthropy. Rich people donate huge sums of money to all kinds of important causes, and it really does wonderful things for our general society and culture. But that doesn't actually seem to be enough. It, it wasn't solving the problem of the growing wealth gap while I was making the film, and I'm not sure that it is now. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes, what other steps need to be taken? Uh, did you ever meet anybody? Have you ever known anybody who gives away so much that they they end up being sort of middle class as opposed to, to super affluent? Well, there was one character I interviewed in the film, The 1%, that gave away his entire inheritance. Ah. And he renounced all of his family wealth. This is the heir to the Oscar Mayer fortune. Chuck Collins. Chuck Collins really gave it away. Everything. And you show him in his kitchen, and his kitchen is very much middle class. He lives very modestly. How would you feel about him? I think he's a really nice guy. And, you know, he's an activist. He goes out of his way to argue for a fair economy. Um, And he really lives by the principles of creating greater equality. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned him because I wanted to talk about him. On the other hand, you have some incidents in uh, both your films. One is where you're uh, interviewing Paul Orfalea, who's the founder of Kinko's. Um, and he's sitting on a park bench. Um, he's already said, I think, that uh, not only does he like having as much money as he has, which is a lot, but he wants to make a lot more. And, and just almost as if uh, on script, a, a homeless guy approaches his park bench and starts, you know, talking. And uh, Paul Orfalea um, flips him, what, a $1 bill? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, he gives him a small amount of cash. I think he gives him a buck. And then says to you, you know, he gave it to him so he would go away. Yes. How do you feel about that? Well, I have a few different things to say about that. On the one hand, you know, I think that it really, and, and, and I included it in the film because I think... There is a tendency in general on the part of the rich to ignore problems of inequality that plague society. And I thought that that incident spoke to those, issue, to those issues. Paul, in the film, I, I realized after I had created the final cut, um, took, was highly criticized for being someone who's extremely selfish and, uh, and a bad person. And I actually don't hold that view of Paul. And, um, and I didn't anticipate very well that that's what people would think about him after watching the film. He's a self-made guy, and he's more, he, is, he is aware of his position of privilege. And he's also, at the same time, unashamed to say that he wants more money. Um, in, in the context of the film, I, I suppose that created a number of uh, re- angry reactions. Um, it wasn't necessarily my intent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I'll also add that, and this comes up sometimes in documentary filmmaking, sometimes you'll get somebody who's willing to say things that are uncomfortable and that are really honest about the world that they come from, and they often end up looking the worst, but other people aren't even willing to go there and aren't really willing to expose themselves in that way. So in his case, you know, saying, hell yeah, I'd like to make more money, was him simply saying what a lot of people feel, but uh, we're not necessarily honest enough to say. 
I think that's true. Yeah. There was another incident uh, in, um, in the previous film, Born Rich, where um, I think you were talking to I- Ivanka uh, Trump, the daughter of Donald Trump and Ivana Trump. Yes. And she describes um, an incident uh, when she was young, when she was uh, going into Trump Tower with her father, Donald, <laughs> and they see a homeless guy out on the curb. And Donald Trump says, that guy has $8 billion more than I have because, you know, on paper, Trump at that time was in debt. Yes. Yeah. And Ivanka Trump says, um, on reflection after that, years later, she thought how proud she was of her family that they came back um, from that kind of indebtedness that, uh, that, that Donald Trump actually did, um, you know, he did restructure and get solvent again. Um, but the homeless guy almost is a afterthought in that story. And uh, I, I don't know how, again, I want to ask your feelings about that, that anecdote. Well, it's an interesting moment in that film because on paper his statements were entirely accurate. But if you were to look at the privileges he has and the benefits he has as someone who's been extremely affluent and a celebrity, obviously, he, you know, it's, it's not uh, reasonable to compare his situation to a homeless person. Yeah, and, and, you know, I sort of thought, well, she's going to say he does something nice for the homeless guy, but instead he just uses the, uses the homeless guy as, as a foil <laughs> in the story. Um, yeah. Um, now, um, the, uh, the consequences of, of even talking about this stuff uh, are brought up in the film, uh, in both films, um, and especially, I think, in, um, in The 1%, where, for instance, Nicole Buffett, granddaughter of Warren Buffett, participates in the film, but he found out about her participation and simply because she was talking about being wealthy. And not in, in, a, in a horribly critical way. I mean, not in a... She wasn't, uh, as, as far as I could tell, she certainly wasn't uh, uh, slandering him. But he found out and he cut her off. I mean, he disowned her, yes? He wrote her a letter saying, and I'm paraphrasing, that uh, he didn't consider her a granddaughter legally or emotionally. Did he cut her off from her inheritance, or...? She says that he did. Huh. Were you at all worried about that kind of consequence from your family? I wasn't too worried about it. Also, But in the case of Nicole Buffett, I was shocked that, that she received that letter. And I think she was shocked as well. I mean, in the film... And even off camera, when I was working on the film, she, you know, showed me pictures of her childhood with Warren, spending time with him. And I really think that his reaction speaks to the sense of fear that rich people have about talking about wealth. Again, uh, we've talked a little bit about where the inhibition and the taboos come from, but the fear—you use the word fear—and I think that's 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 an interesting one. Where do you think that fear comes from? Well. In the case of one of the richest people in the world, I think they're probably used to having a lot of control over the people around them, and they're used to being in complete control of their own lives, their own businesses, things like that. And I think they don't want anyone in their family stepping out of line, and they punish them with these kinds of threats. And in the case of, you know, Nicole with uh, a renunciation of her as a family member. Hmm. Well, um, 
just to wrap up here, Jamie, uh, we talked a lot about how you know you're critical of the kind of exorbitant uh, amounts of wealth that are now concentrated in the hands of a few few of the the upper crust. And uh, I really have to ask you, what are you going to do with your money? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I I'm not sure yet. So far, wealth has been a wonderful thing for me um, in my life. You know, I've been able to make films of, and pursue a career in the arts. That's something I would never have been able to do uh, without family money. I also had a great education. I've been able to travel. So for me, I feel like my inheritance has really provided me with a number of opportunities to enrich my life in ways that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Um, across the board, in terms of people holding large sums of, of wealth, you know, I, I think inequality has always existed. I think any, increasing inequality is a real danger. I think that if you have the gap between the rich and poor growing, I think that that is something that can really injure your society. I think that, you know, America was at its best when we had a growing middle class that was growing at an extremely rapid rate. And uh, I think that it's, you know, the obligation of of politicians and, and the rich as well, because they have a great amount of influence to try and get back to that place where we have a really a strong, thriving middle class. So how do you see yourself as getting involved in that, um, in that effort? I mean, do you see yourself going in a political direction, trying to apply your influence through, through the political process, or do you see yourself remaining kind of a, a documentarian? Um, while I was making the 1%, I would often ask some of the <laughs> incredibly intelligent people. I interviewed Nobel laureates, cabinet, former cabinet members, things like that. What do you think someone in my position would be, should be doing to address the problem? And they would say, you should be making a film. And I'd say, yeah, but I'm already doing that. What else? And no one had a great answer. And I thought, interesting, wow, this really shows you that this is such a complex and messy problem that, you know, the most distinguished scholars in the world really don't have clear-cut solutions to address this problem. So are you going to make another film? I, I'll continue making films. I'm looking forward to getting involved in fictional filmmaking because I think in some ways, you know, it, it's honest and uh, it can be even more honest at times, I think. so. Uh, but, uh, but yes, I'm definitely going to continue making films. You know, it's funny you say that fictional filmmaking because they're really, uh, I would say, that the very roots of popular film are in class struggle. Uh, Charlie Chaplin um, and many of the, the early silent films were all about the struggle of the poor and the downtrodden. So film has been, at least at various phases in history, a huge um, way of expressing all this. And there's the fact that during the uh, Great Depression, there were a number of films made about wealth and the rich, um, and that even though people were really struggling at the time, they went out of their way to uh, to pay for movie tickets yeah. for films that were primarily about upper-class lifestyles. That's true. During the Depression, a lot of fantasy films. Um, you know, I, I noticed that your um, the Wikipedia article about you describes you as an American film director, heir, and socialite. Does it? Yeah, it does. How do you feel about that? I guess I feel okay about that. <laughs> I mean, it's not an accurate statement. I I enjoy being sociable, and uh, and I live in Manhattan. So, uh -huh. you know, uh, if I if I go to parties or events, and uh, 
and that means I'm a socialite, then, you know, I'm also a socialite. It doesn't say socialist. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that probably wouldn't be, wouldn't be uh, accurate either. All right. Well, Jamie, thank you a, a, a whole lot for your time today. Thanks so much. That was Jamie Johnson, documentary filmmaker with two films to his credit so far, Born Rich and The 1%. And this is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today we're doing another in our ongoing series of shows on wealth in America from a variety of perspectives. In this program, looking a gift horse in the mouth and talking to the heirs of large family fortunes who came to question their own advantages and the way wealth is distributed in this country. Now, as you may have heard in that last interview, Jamie Johnson and I spoke briefly about Chuck Collins, who, like Jamie, was born into a top-tier brand-name family and who... um, came to wonder at his birthright, and later became a campaigner for economic equality. Now he's a senior scholar with the Institute for Policy Studies, and he heads up an initiative called Wealth for the Common Good. I got in touch with Chuck Collins to hear his story. Well, Chuck, uh, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Um, Before we get into broader issues of of wealth and inequality in the U.S., I just wanted to um, learn a little bit more about your background. You were yourself an heir to a sizable sum? Yep, I was I uh, was born on third base. Uh, <laughs> and did you think you'd hit a triple? <laughs> no, I, I no, I did not hit a triple. I, I was born there. Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. I was uh, connected to uh, a big meatpacking fortune in the Midwest. And, you know, grew up in a privileged suburb of Detroit and um, but I guess at a young age, I, and I remember in Detroit in 1967, uh, I was seven years old, uh, was when the riots erupted. And uh, that's when I sort of started to ask my parents questions that, you know, like, huh, not, every, not everything is hunky-dory and not everybody lives as, uh, as uh, fortunate as we do. So at a very early age, it was planted the seed that too much, too much inequality is not a good thing. So, so we should say what um, what family you're a member of, and and, and why why it was wealthy. Uh, well, it was an Oscar Mayer meatpacking company. So over multiple generations, it became a very successful brand. And then, and then in the early '80s, the company sold this family business uh, sold out to uh, you know one of the big conglomerates. So uh, that expanded the family wealth pie. You you are a great grandson of Oscar Mayer himself. Yep. Okay. So you started asking questions after the Detroit riots, um, and uh, what came of that in your life? Well, I think that um, I, as I grew older, I just came to understand how the class and race system in the U.S. worked, and um, and then as I, uh, you know, when I graduated from high school, I worked for a number of years in Worcester. Uh, I went to college. I worked for Catholic Relief Services in Central America. I just sort of got a global understanding of the inequalities. I also, um, you know, benefited from uh, that, that multi-generations of wealth and, um, you know, had an enormous wind at my back. And I think that that got me thinking about, um, you know, just how much of a head start should anybody have in a society that tries to be democratic and have equality of opportunity and and uh, by the age of uh, you know 24 I was pretty much at the point where I thought well I've had I've had a sufficient head start uh, I think I'll pass on the gift that I got and so I gave away the inheritance I had at that point 
You gave it away um, in, in what way? Oh, I, uh, I gave it to a number of foundations that were committed to um, equality of opportunity, expanding education, um, and economic fairness. By giving it away, did you leave yourself with essentially zero? Did you have to start from scratch then after college? Yeah. I basically was living in a kind of Catholic worker community, which was um, inspired by, you know, Dorothy Day and others who uh, were committed to living very simply. So, yeah, I was, you know, I was also in my mid-20s. Things were pretty uh, black and white, and I didn't want to be very, I didn't want to leave much in the way in, in doubt. So, you know, for me it was a question of, you know, making my own way. So after that, what what uh, direction did your career take? Well, I worked for about 10 years as a community organizer, working on issues of access to affordable housing. I worked with uh, mobile home park tenants to organize so they could purchase their parks and own them as resident-owned cooperatives. And I think in the um, it was probably in the uh, late 80s, early 1990s that it was becoming really clear that the disparities of income and wealth were growing in the U.S., and I started to read and study and talk to people about that and took an interest in, you know, why is it we're, why is it we're pulling apart as a society and um, met up with a number of other people and together founded an organization to kind of do education and policy work around the disparities of wealth called, called United for a Fair Economy. And... Um, in the mix, in the context of that, we uh, we also formed a project that reached reached out to high net worth individuals and business leaders who were concerned about these same trends of inequality. Speaking of those high net worth individuals that you reached out to and worked with, um, Bill Gates Sr. was one of them. Yeah, at one point, um, uh, President Bush had just come been elected, and he uh, had advocated abolishing the inheritance tax, the estate tax, or what some people call the death tax. And um, so we organized an effort to try to uh, keep keep the estate tax. It's, it's, it is the the only tax on accumulated wealth. It's probably the fairest tax we have. It falls on you know multi-million dollar inheritances. And um, I was connected with Bill Gates's Bill Gates Senior, the father and the founder of Microsoft, who shared our concern about you know. It was a bad idea to abolish the estate tax. And so uh, we did a national campaign. And part of that was to organize people who would pay the estate tax to publicly say, oh, we should keep it. And we, in the end, uh, organized several thousand uh, high net worth individuals who either had paid an estate tax or would pay an estate tax to call on Congress to say, you know, reform it, but don't get rid of it. And that's um, and that campaign continues to to this day. Re- reform it how? At the time in 2001, the the, the amount of wealth exempted by the tax was about six hundred and seventy thousand dollars. And from from our point of view, it was fine if the if the amount of wealth exempted by the tax was was increased. The original intent of the estate tax was to be an anti-dynasty tax, right? Uh, to to prevent the concentrations of wealth. So. Somebody has, you know, six hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars in net worth. It may be that they just own a home in California. You know, it's not um, that they are substantially of the of the powerful wealth class. Mm-hmm. So, from our point of view, yeah, the, the estate the estate tax should fall on on 
you know, the, 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 the one-third of one percent of the wealthiest inheritance is not, not on, on the just wealthy coastal homeowners. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess that you and uh, Bill Gates Sr. and others that you worked with are um, credited with helping to defeat that repeal of the estate tax, at least for the time being. Uh, well, if we're credited, it's, it's a little exaggerated. I mean, I think we played a part, and we certainly helped change the conversation because I think most people didn't know what the estate tax was. There was a very powerful, organized, uh, conservative movement to abolish the estate tax, uh, and part of their strategy was to get everybody to think they owed it. The fact that we got our folks involved helped educate the public Probably the thing that, in the end, kept it from going away is that you know we have this fiscal crisis with you know trillions of dollars of um, debt that we've accumulated. So, uh, and and we also made the argument during 2002, 2003, 2004 that cutting taxes for the rich during a time of war was historically unprecedented uh, through U.S. history. During times of war, there's a real push to to, to have some sense of shared sacrifice, and uh, to conscript wealth, to tax wealth, to help pay for war. And here, under President Bush, we were cutting taxes on the wealthy, and at the same time, seeing uh, the sons and daughters of working-class Americans coming home in coffins. I mean, it was just grotesque. Can you give us um, a kind of summary, in brief, of the history of income tax rates in the U.S.? You just uh, referred to Bush era tax cuts, which, um, according to a number of statistics, were um, tilted in favor of the wealthiest Americans. Can we go back in time a little bit and, 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 and um, look at how the level of taxation has seesawed sure. through the years? Well, I'll try to give the quick picture, and if I'm blathering on too long, I'll bet. <laughs> but um, basically, think a century ago, we were in uh, the first gilded age in the United States. The country, uh, you know, we've been through the Industrial Revolution, and uh, the tremendous fortunes had grown up. Um, you know, think of uh, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers and the, the great uh, robber baron and, and resource-based uh, fortunes. And at that point, there was no federal income tax. There was no uh, federal inheritance tax. But there was a movement, uh, the populist movement and uh, the urban progressive reformers who were pressing for uh, the creation of an income tax, and it required a change in the Constitution. The 16th Amendment created the income tax, and it got a push also from the fact that we were going into World War II, and uh, most revenue came from uh, excise taxes and um, essentially, you know, sort of taxes on trade, which tended to be more regressive, meaning that they were paid disproportionately by lower and middle-income working people. So the push for an income tax and an estate tax, inheritance tax, was to tax some of these great concentrations of wealth and have them play a, a contribute their fair share to the revenue system. So the first income tax was really fell on the top 5% of, of income earners. And uh, again, in 19... 16, 1918, the first inheritance taxes came into being. And by, then, by the way, by the way, Chuck, you said yeah. this was the onset of World War II. You meant World War I. I'm sorry, yeah, World War I. Right. Thanks for clarifying that. So sure. World War I was really the context for the establishment of the income tax and the estate tax. Um, so then going into the Depression, 
there was uh, a push to make the um, tax rates much more steeply progressive. Um, so, uh, you know, during President Roosevelt's second term, he campaigned for raising taxes on the top and uh, increased the top tax rates and the income tax rates. During World War II, uh, when there was really an enormous need for revenue, the tax uh, base was expanded to, to affect many, many more working Americans. Um, Irving Berlin wrote a propaganda song during World War II called uh, I Paid My Income Tax Today. Oh, really? <laughs> One of the verses goes, you know, I see that bomber in the sky. Rockefeller paid for it. So did I. Uh, and the idea was there were everybody's paying. So that, so that income taxes worked their way down the economic ladder. It wasn't just the rich that paid income taxes at that point, but but uh, weight, lower wage earners as well. But so coming out of World War II, we had a very progressive income tax system. Under Eisenhower, uh, 1955, the top tax rate on, on incomes on the equivalent of over $2 million today was 91%. Now, there were a lot of loopholes, but the, basically the super-rich effectively paid about half their income and income taxes uh, in the late 40s and 1950s and into the early 60s. Mm-hmm. And essentially, we taxed ourselves at progressive rates, and we made big, bold investments in things like infrastructure, uh, the Gen- GI Bill that expanded education opportunity, um, fair, you know, housing, home ownership for a fifth of the population. Public universities. These, public universities. These were all large social investments as well as like infrastructure, electric systems, highways, uh, water, electrification, you know, things that really uh, were investments in expanding prosperity and shared prosperity. And really from 1950 to 19, the mid-70s, we had the golden age of, uh, of the expansion of the U.S. middle class. Uh, thanks in part to a progressive tax system that was invested in a way that gave people access to wealth building, mm-hmm. home ownership, and education. Uh, so of course, some folks looked at that as not a golden age at all, but an oppressive age of government overspending and overreach. Yeah. You know, there, you know, in retrospect, you will hear, you know, the other, the Anne Ran, Ayn Rands of the world will talk about how the New Deal was, you know, choking away, but there. Were, there was a pretty broad consensus, including among business leaders, uh, that progressive taxes was, was the price you pay to live in a healthy, uh, civilized community. And I should jump in and just say, you know, the definition of progressive tax is a tax rate that goes up with income. So the higher your income, the higher the percentage. Yeah, based on your capacity to pay, the greater your capacity, uh, the greater percentage you may pay. Okay. As opposed to regressive, which is... Most state and local taxes, sales taxes, liquor taxes, cigarette taxes, uh, property taxes, are tend to be uh, more regressive, meaning the, the lower your income, the higher percentage you tend to pay. Mm-hmm. So recent history is, uh, I guess you could say, in the, in the early 80s, Ronald Reagan came in, he campaigned on cutting taxes, but there was really a tax rebellion in the late 70s, a whole movement, organized movement around cutting taxes, they had the theory that uh, if you cut taxes, it'll bolster economic growth. And so there was a real the top tax rates on the wealthy came tumbling down. And that's essentially continued to up to the present. 
uh, with a very short period where uh, President Clinton in his first uh, term raised top income tax rates modestly, never back to what they were prior to Ronald Reagan, though. So, and under President Bush, we saw the top tax rates coming down, down, down. So if you want to look at it from compared to, say, the 50s to the present, the tax obligations of the super wealthy have gone down by, by half. Uh, someone that the equivalent income today uh, would pay twice as much as what they pay in income tax and capital gains and, and um, inheritance taxes as they, do, as they did in the 1950s. The tax cuts have have disproportionately favored the wealthy, in your opinion, and the opinion of many others. It's a fact. I mean, there's no there's no doubt about it. Most of the tax cuts in 2001 and 2003, the the vast dollar amount of them, went to households with incomes over a million dollars. Um, Seven hundred billion dollars in tax cuts uh, flowed to the top, you know, one percent of earners in between 2001 and 2008. So that's a big tax giveaway. And essentially, it was just added on to the debt. We just added it on. We just borrowed to pay for those tax cuts. We borrowed for the war. We borrowed for these bailouts, Wall Street bailouts. We're basically borrowing and squandering as opposed to taxing and investing. Now, when President Obama, during his campaign, was touting some reforms to, to taxation that would result in increases in, uh, in taxes uh, to people with incomes of two hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars a year and over, he was he was really essentially talking about a return to tax rates that were equivalent to those uh, during the, the Clinton administration, mid nineties. Yep, is that yep. right? So yep. he wasn't talking about rolling the clock all the way back to say the eighties, the Reagan years. We're, we're talking about a 4.6% increase in the income tax on households with incomes over a quarter of a million. That's essentially what he's saying is, I'm going to let the 2001-2003 Bush tax cuts expire. Mm-hmm. They are going to expire in 2011. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, the clock is, runs out. They were, they were temporary tax cuts, and they're going to expire. So, so the, the proposals we heard argued over during the presidential campaign if Obama got his way, would kick in in 2011 simply by not renewing the tax cuts that, that Bush enacted? That's right. Um, and, and do you have a sense of where Obama stands at this point on that? His plan is that the, he, uh, he, his intention is to uh, let them expire still. Okay. Um, he campaigned on immediately reversing them, and I think he then decided, well, we'll just wait till they expire. Uh, our, our uh, you know, I've been part of an effort called Wealth for the Common Good, which is uh, recently organized a petition calling on the president and Congress to immediately reverse the tax cuts. Why wait? You know, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars uh, that could could be helping cover some of these budget gaps. Um, but um, and the other way he's proposed to close the gap is through closing overseas tax havens. I mean, the other thing that we haven't really talked about is corporate taxation. Yes. And what's happened in the last decade with corporate taxation is it's become for the big global corporations essentially a game. A volu- you know, it's a voluntary tax. You know, they have figured out through loopholes and pretending to have their losses in the U.S. and their profits and uh, subsidiaries based in countries that don't have tax systems or income mm-hmm. tax corporate income tax systems. So, you know, you and I get together and start a company, and you're the subsidiary in the Grand Cayman Islands. We pretend that all the profits are earned there in your little mailbox. 
and all the losses earned here in the United States at our main plant uh-huh. game the system so we don't pay any corporate income taxes. So one of the ways the president has proposed that we raise revenue is to close these overseas tax havens, which would generate $200 billion a year in uh, lost revenue. Now, now, of course, the counter-argument is, uh, you know, by um, putting too much of a burden on corporations, uh, that burden will still fall on, on ordinary people. You know, jobs will be lost, um, wages will stagnate or go down, you know, benefits will be cut. Um, I, I don't think we have time to get into the fine points of that argument, but maybe we can address it at a very high level. The uh, the idea that there 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 is at some point um, a proper balance between taxes uh, on the one hand and uh, free market economy on the other, uh, and different people would say that balance is in a different place, right? I mean, the supply siders for years argued that uh, if you unleash the the productivity uh, of American businesses by uh, lifting their tax burden, that the benefits would would fall on all of us. Um, on the other hand, some people say, well, you know, higher taxes, uh, redistribute the wealth through government programs. That's the fairer solution. Is there a theoretical um, argument that you would make about where the golden mean is? Well, first of all, you don't hear anybody make the argument, the trickle-down argument that we're going to cut taxes and it's going to benefit everybody else because we've just lived through a 30-year experiment and what happens, and all it does is it creates grotesque inequalities. So well, we've lived through trickle-down economics, and, and so you're not, you're not going to find any credible argument. Now the argument is, okay, if you, you know, here, here's the thing. These, two-thirds of U.S. companies between 1998 and 2005, two-thirds of these global companies paid no taxes, right? Yet they enjoyed the United States system of uh, property right protections, legal protections, a standing army that protects property. They they kind of have, you know, benefited from all the public investment and not contributed a dime toward it. So we're at the far extreme end of of irresponsibility. Uh, you just used the phrase grotesque inequality, I think. Um, can you give us a few statistics about the distribution of wealth, the income uh, and wealth gap in America? and how it compares now to previous eras? Well, it's interesting to look back even as recent as the the mid-'70s. Real wages between 1947 and 1977, really pretty much the rising tide did lift all boats. The bottom fifth saw their real income go up, uh, net worth, as well as the top fifth. Everybody saw their real incomes go up the middle. Uh, In the last 30 years, we've pulled apart. Real wages have been stagnant. They haven't gone up really since Richard Nixon was president uh, for the bottom. And they've taken off on a rocket launcher on the top. Um, So we've just seen income inequality grow. In terms of wealth, savings, net worth, wealth, uh, we've seen more wealth concentrate in the hands of a few than any time since 100 years ago during the first Gilded Age. So here we are. We're back where we were 100 years ago. The richest 1% of the population has over 40% of all the private wealth, more more than the bottom 95% of the population combined. That richest 1% has enormous share of the wealth pie. It wasn't that way 30 years ago. So in a very short time, we've seen a gushing up of wealth to the top and uh, 
at the bottom and in the middle, uh, declining savings, declining net worth. Uh, now with the implosion of the housing and mortgage crisis, we've seen people's nest eggs, retirement security, uh, home equity vanish. Uh, so that's what, what we mean by extreme inequality. And incidentally, um, we have a website called extremeinequality.org where people can go. There's a, there are chart packs. There are graphs. There are links to some of these statistics and studies. You don't have to believe me. You can look at the numbers that come out of the Federal Reserve and other places. Um, when you say we, you mean? Um, it's uh, you know, the Institute for Policy Studies. We have a project called the Working Group on Extreme Inequality, and the website is extremeinequality.org. There you'll find uh, uh, chart packs that you can download and graphs and, and, and research materials on the current levels of inequality. Institute for Policy Studies, I think some of our listeners will recognize, a liberal think tank uh, in Washington, D.C. Been around for since, uh, the, since 1964. Okay. Um, now, you know, getting back to that question about an ideal mean, uh, would you agree that taxation can go too far and stifle um, innovation, uh, incentives, uh, productivity, and all of that? Is there, is there a feeling that there is a, a, a proper a level of taxation and beyond which we shouldn't go? Well, I think a 100% tax rate would be a bad idea. <laughs> um, oh, you're a real moderate, are you? <laughs> well, let's, 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 you know, that, that might be a disincentive. But we're, we're pretty far from that point. And here, you know, th- th- this is where mythology and reality are really pretty different. You know, I've, I've interviewed uh, hundreds of entrepreneurs of, you know, people who've started businesses, people who uh, would, would be considered successful and, and wealthy in, in, by any means in the business press and the economy. If you actually talk to them about these issues of taxation, tax rate, it doesn't change behavior at even very, very steeply progressive tax rates. Now, remember, the, the, the economic growth rates in the 50s and 60s in this country were, were unparalleled. And yet we had, and, and, and businesses were starting and there was all kinds of economic activity. We had very steeply progressive tax rates. But um, but I'm I'm just curious to know, in your heart of hearts, what what do you think the ideal tax system would be? I mean, not the most politically viable, but uh, uh, what what do you think would be perfect? Well, I think we would do some things that uh, happened under President Reagan, which was we eliminated in 1986 during the tax reform, we eliminated lots and lots of loopholes and all the ways in which privileged individuals and corporations game the system and shifted taxes on to working people and small businesses. So you close a lot of loopholes. Then the question is, at that point, if, you, if you've closed a lot of loopholes, maybe the rates don't have to be so high, but we should still have progressive rates. I guess I would argue quickly that we should have an Income tax on incomes over a million dollars that approaches a 50% rate, meaning that every dollar over a million dollars is taxed at a 50% rate. Wealth, inherited wealth, should be taxed, and it probably should be a progressive system. So if you're passing on you know, $2 million, maybe there isn't an inheritance tax. But if you're taxing on $2 billion, you have a fairly steeply progressive inheritance tax, and I would say, again, up to 50% and maybe even higher on super fortunes. Because here's the thing, when we allow 
great concentrations of wealth and monopoly power to, to aggregate as they have, it undermines economic health for everybody. And it, it, it's just bad for a democratic, self-governing society to have these great concentrations of wealth and power. Well, let's make that argument, why don't we? Um, let me just throw out a straw man for you, okay? Um, one argument against really, uh, uh, really pronounced inequality is that sooner or later the poor will rise up and, uh, and revolt or that crime and other forms uh, of social unrest will increase and society will fall apart. Um, however, if we look at America right now, despite the, uh, the kinds of uh, wealth disparities that you pointed out uh, that have emerged in the last 20 or so years, we don't see that happening at this point. I don't, I don't see a grassroots rebellion that's going to shake the country at its foundations, nor, nor really has violent crime gone up that much or at all. Um, so, so those two arguments don't necessarily don't necessarily seem to have any 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 bearing on what's going on right now. So 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 make a make an argument for me that uh, says this kind of inequality is really destructive to society as a whole. Well, we just got a crash course in terms of the economic crisis. When we have um, an economy that's funneling wealth to the top, you have a small percentage of the population that has a lot of money to move around the world and move around in terms of investments. And what did they? What did the, the, the uber rich do with their capital in the last decade? They speculated with it. They, trillions of dollars moved into the casino sector of the economy. Uh, it was not invested in any way that was productive, that was creating anything of real value. It was a form of gambling. So when you have great inequality, on the one hand, you have uh, speculative casino capitalism, and then you have this problem, which is. You know, 60% of the population is not seeing their real incomes going up, and their consumption and lifestyle is based on borrowing, is based on debt, not based on real wage growth. And so that contributes to economic instability. So the first point I would make is that too much inequality contributes to economic instability, mm-hmm. and we just got a very good example of that. The second is too much inequality is bad for the quality of life. Uh, it, it wrecks um, our communities. I mean, public health. Uh, there's all kinds of um, research showing that too much inequality undermines public health. You can live in a county in the U.S., and if you have less inequality, everybody's health is going to be better, including the rich. If you live in a county that has great inequality, even if you're rich, public health indicators are worse. So inequality is bad for our health bad for the economy. It's clearly bad for the democracy when Congress is completely controlled by money interests and, and donors and not by voters. Uh, and I would argue, though, that you know, the, in terms of the rising up and marching in the street situation, you have a lot of very stressed out, ground down people who are working two jobs, three jobs, borrowing just to try to keep their, their lives together. Uh, but I think under one of the big undercurrents of dissatisfaction and the deteriorated quality of life for a lot of people are these inequalities. Well, let me ask you to step then into the role maybe of psychologists for a moment. As you pointed out, um, there, there really wasn't any income tax um, until after the turn of the century. Is that right? That's right. 
and then as a result of of, of, of huge inequality and, and a variety of social ills and the onset of, of World War One, the the country started to impose taxation on on the wealthiest Americans. Yes, right. And then gradually, uh, over the next couple of decades, and, and going into World War Two, uh, income taxes were extended to middle and low income people. Is that right? That's true. Yeah. yeah, and it was seen as patriotic, partly because of the war. In the first case, uh, World War One; the second case, World War Two, and uh, an effort was made to say, "Hey, we, we we should all share the burden by giving up a portion of our incomes." And Americans seems to have bought into that proposition, though of course, I mean, FDR and others were vilified at various times, but the majority of Americans seem to support it. Yes, that's true. And then come come the 1970s, really, and then uh, really getting getting going in the 80s, there was this backlash. And that backlash um, seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, to, to, to live on even after this great recession that we're in. A large number of Americans are really resistant to the idea of any increases in taxes, even for the wealthy, it sounds like. How do you, how do you explain that? Well, first of all, it's just, it's just not true. that The polling shows that people at this point today support increased progressive taxes on the wealthy, and the making of long overdue investments in education, uh, retrofitting our energy system, health care. There's a lot of noise to the contrary, but the reality is most Americans, including wealthy Americans, believe that the system should be rebalanced. Well, what do the polling numbers show exactly? Oh, at this point, it's like 60 to 70 percent support uh, increased income taxes on household incomes over 250,000. So, you- wildly popular. By the way, Fifty-two percent of people with incomes over two hundred and fifty thousand, right? The folks who voted uh, that, that, that would pay these taxes. Fifty-two percent of them voted for Obama. You know, there's never been a higher percentage of higher-income households voting for a Democratic president who campaigned on raising taxes on them. Yet they voted for him. We voted for President Obama. Why? Because. Almost everybody recognizes where's the money going to come from. Hmm. We basically are just borrowing money. We're not taxing ourselves. Anybody who looks around honestly sees the price we're paying in terms of public disinvestment and infrastructure. It's a whole. It's a. I'm not saying that there aren't real feelings. I'm just saying that it's an organized, amplified. You know, twenty, fifteen, twenty percent of the population that is going to oppose any tax, any time. But they no, and by no means reflect the vast majority of people. Am I wrong, though, in, in getting the impression that even if you're correct that that's really only 15 to 20 percent who are truly, truly committed and driving a, a campaign against any increase in taxes, that there is this, this other group of Americans who seem to have some sympathy with that viewpoint, um, reflected in maybe in declining number approval numbers for uh, Obama and um, maybe other kinds of polling. You know, if you ask people, uh, do you do you uh, are you for and against a tax? In the abstract, people say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't want to pay taxes. Do you do you want to pay taxes on? Do you want taxes on the rich? Uh, someday I might be there. No, I don't want it. So you ha- in the abstract, nobody's, nobody jumps up and down and says, tax me. But if you, if you get people into their civic mindset, which is, okay, here, here's the situation. we got a $9 trillion debt. 
we got bridges falling down. We got uh, a second, you know, an education system that's not preparing our children to participate in the global economy. You can go down the list. They say, how should this? How should we deal with this? How should we pay for it? People overwhelmingly say, well, yeah, I, I personally would pay more taxes, and I support a progressive tax system to pay for it. So, you know, in some ways, maybe we're all two-minded. You know, there is a sense, there is a desire in the United States, I think, to get all the benefits of living in a with a large, robust, and active government without having to pay for it. Mm. Um, but you know. It's the Walmart mentality. We just want to get something for less, you know? Mm. Okay, okay. That said, people who have any kind of civic hat on their head, who are just thinking either as parents, as, as, as uh, children of elderly parents, uh, parents of children who live in communities, who kind of understand the concept of, you know, budget, money in, money out, the reasonable discussion comes around to, and yeah, we have to, we ha- right now we have to figure out how we're going to pay for it. Come up with a, what's your plan? You know, what's your alternative? Borrow more? No, we don't, that's not a good idea. Tax uh, working class and middle class people more? Uh, no, that's a bad idea. Ask the wealthy who used to pay a lot higher to ante up and pay a sliver more? Seems reasonable. That's, that is the conversation. Why don't we um, wrap up our conversation by talking just a bit about this initiative that you're spearheading, Wealth for the Common Good? Just briefly tell us what it's about and, and, and uh, what its aim is then. Well, it's partly to organize and amplify the voice of the people who will pay, the, pay these taxes. We call it, we call it the, the Coalition of the Willing Taxpayers <laughs> who recognize that uh, we need to rebalance the tax system and people at the top should do should share in the sacrifice. I mean, some people are losing their jobs, losing their homes, seeing their entire retirement security vanish. Um, we are living at a time of war when in, in the past, throughout U.S. history, uh, wealthy people, the wealth has been conscripted to help pay for war. Here, the rich are getting tax cuts during a time of war. There's something unseemly about that kind of sacrifice. So our folks are saying, you know, it's reasonable. Not only that, but when I interview them and uh, write up their stories, they understand that part of their wealth came from their hard work, and part of it came from the fact that they live in a country that makes remarkable investments in creating a fertile ground for wealth creation, whether it's our education system or our property law system or the public investments that we've made in the Internet, or uh, the GI Bill, or the highway system, or, you know, go down the list, there are these bold public investments that set the U.S. economy apart. You know, if you you hear people whining and complaining, saying, I earned all this wealth by myself, why should I have to pay? Uh, Well, if 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 the wealth was all connected to their hard work, let's do an experiment. Let's go to Honduras for five years and bring your entrepreneurial hard work there, and we'll see how wealthy you get, assuming you don't break any laws. Right? Uh, and then come back to the United States and show us what you got. Because the reality is a larger portion of the wealth that's been created 
is the result of both the technological investments that we as a society make together, the infrastructure and public investments that we make together, and the hard work of many people, not just the, not just the investors and the wealth holders. So our folks just recognize it. It's not that we're saying individuals don't matter. Individual effort matters and creativity and risk-taking and all that stuff is important and should be rewarded. But let's just rec- let's pay back the society so that other people can have the same opportunities that many, many wealth creators, wealth builders, successful people had. So, so you're trying to bring, bring on board uh, in this effort uh, wealthy Americans who say, yes, we want to pay more taxes or we should pay more taxes. Yep. And, and how's this going over? I mean, first of all, how do you, how do you advocate for this? How do you, how do you recruit for this? Do you, do you go and meet up with um, wealthy individuals? And yeah, say, or there's, there's associations of foundations and, and uh, networks of uh, donors and business leaders. And, uh, we've, you know, we were, had an article in the Wall Street Journal last weekend, and we got maybe another 50 signers to our call who, who would owe the taxes, people who would pay the taxes. Anybody, by the way, could go on, sign our petition, calling for increasing top tax rates. But, um, you know, we're, we're particularly looking for people who would pay those top tax rates because I think it's an important uh, statement and an important witness. And, and how's it going? It's going great. I mean, we've been doing it for two weeks. Uh, we've got 250 high-income folks, uh, uh, you know, get, adding a dozen a day. And um, we're, you know, it's summertime, so it's a little slow, but we're we're... We're out there putting the word out, and you know what's interesting is to see the comments that come in, uh, not only from those but from others who say, you know, this is this is really inspiring to me. It's important to hear uh, that not all wealthy people are just sort of saying, "Cut my taxes; it's all mine, and I don't owe anything to this society." Um, on the one hand, you've got your petition. Um, on the other hand, on the other side, you've got people lobbying to the tune of millions and millions of dollars to preserve or even increase tax cuts, yes? And you've also got grassroots, uh, you know, Tea Party folks agitating uh, at the bottom. Are you guys outgunned? Um, yeah, I would say we're outgunned. But I think that at this stage, our, our goal is to change the conversation, to first get what I would call a new narrative about wealth and success out there so people understand that, even if, you're, if your goal is to become wealthy and successful, you can't do that in a society where we're dismantling the ladder of opportunity for everybody to participate in the economic health and life of the commonwealth, if you will. Well, well Chuck, thank you for your time today. Hey, thanks for the conversation. Chuck Collins is a senior scholar with the Institute for Policy Studies and director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good. I said to my Uncle Sam, old man taxes, here I am, and he was glad to see me. Mr. Small Fry, yes indeed, lower brackets, that's my speed, but he was glad to see me. I paid my income tax today. I never felt so proud before To be right there with the millions more Who pay their income tax today 
I'm squared up with the USA. You see those bombers in the sky. Rockefeller helped to build them, so did I. I paid my income tax today. I paid my income tax today. A thousand planes to bomb Berlin. They'll all be paid for, and I chipped in. That certainly makes me feel okay. Ten thousand more, and that ain't hay. We must pay for this war somehow. Uncle Sam was worried, but he isn't now. I paid my income tax today.